Hi, I'm the World Indoor Team Captain Sophie McKenna, and you are listening to the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you in association with the NAHT. The support network behind you is probably the most important thing in your career. I've learned over the years to discard those people in my life. It's been pretty awful. There's been hurt and tears and blood, blood sweat and tears. And that's what I'd say. So I'd say persevere. Go through the pain, go through the hurt, go through the broken bones because it's worth it. Hello and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset Podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by the NHT, the School Leaders Union. I just wanted to take a second to thank everybody for listening in last week. We were absolutely delighted to find out that we reached the top 25% of new podcasts. And we very briefly managed to make it into the top 200 for business podcasts in the UK. I'd also like to say a big thank you to this week's guest, Sophie McKinna, for engaging in a Q&A with our listeners this week. If you'd like to get involved and ask questions to future guests, then keep an eye out for the hashtag, the Olympic Mindset Podcast. This week's guest is Sophie McKenna. Sophie is a former silver medalist at the 2013 European Junior Championships. She just recently defended her British Championship at the Olympics in Tokyo and she works as a custody detention officer for the police. Sophie is an inspirational individual who embodies the idea of the Olympic mindset. She's here today to share her journey that has led her to become Team GB World Indoor Captain at the young age of 27. Sophie, thanks for joining us today and thanks for sharing your ideas around leadership and life. No worries at all. Great to be here. Great. So far and away, first question, what does leadership look like to you? So for me, I've been representing GB um, at a senior level since I was 16. So and I'm now 27, so I've been doing it for, for sort of quite a long time and I've come across sort of different leaders, different styles of leaders sort of all the way through my career. And for me, leadership is somebody who uh, is inspirational, motivational, um, is great at gelling a team together. Because obviously in the sport I do, it's an individual sport. Um, and it's not often we come together as Team GB as such. To have that uh, ability to, to, to bring people together, I think, is really important in a leader. I think someone that you can look up to as well, super important. So my my granddad was a professional footballer for, for Norwich City and um, also a manager at Norwich City and, and for me a lot of my sporting qualities come from him and in my eyes I think he's a great leader because he knows when to when to push you hard but also when to when to give you the the, the sympathy and the, the sort of soft side of him that's, that's needed to bring you on as well. I'm a massive football fan so I'm aware of who Dave Stringer is. I actually remember collecting stickers with Dave Stringer in the 90s. You've touched on there that he was a bit of an inspiration for you. How do you deal with that kind of pressure that runs through your family? All, my career is always about one up in his career. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we joke and have a lot of banter and stuff. He is my my true sort of sport and, sport and idol and hero. And I 
you know, I joke about it and, and you know, we, we go tit for tat about our sport and achievements a lot. And he likes to still try and take me on a swing ball now and nearly eight years old and, you know, they're still pretty competitive. Yeah, he's he had such a fantastic career and I don't necessarily see it as, as pressure that runs through my family because I think it's actually a, a been a really helpful tool in my career because obviously my mum has lived in that sporting world so she very much understands it she understands the sacrifice that needs to be made that the time pressures the the financial pressures and all, all of that kind of thing so actually having lived a life of that already okay it's not my dad anymore it's now my daughter so she's slipped back into that role of of living that life again um you know more more so obviously when I was a, a younger athlete now than now but I think it's done nothing but but help my career because all of my family understand what it requires and what it takes to be you know su- successful in sport and, and mentally resilient and, and all the other things I think people sort of see us as athletes go out and perform but they don't necessarily understand that the the, the backstory behind it and the team behind it is absolutely huge like I cannot stress that enough that that the, the, the the support network behind you is probably the most important thing in your career. So Sophie, that's a really interesting point. I'm really interested in nature versus nurture and those things. So obviously you've had great support from home. Your family understand what it means to sacrifice, to allow someone in their network to get to that kind of level. How have you continued to maintain that circle then and that kind of consistency and whoever you're with, whether it's friends, relationships, partners, having that level of understanding that your family already have, that you are going to be making these big sacrifices that you might miss some birthdays, you might be forgetful, you know, you're going to be late for certain things. How do you manage your circle and make sure that they're all on the same page as your family? I think for me, that's, that is a really good question because for me, it's probably taken the last couple of years to really understand that fully myself as a young athlete obviously I was in in school and college and uni and I had like the usual sort of school and college and and uni friends and if I'm totally honest there's probably maybe one or two people that are still my odd classes as my real close friends from that time and they completely understand what I do I mean you know some some people expect more contact but my friends are are uber supportive of what I do and I think I've learned over the years to discard those people in my in my life that that don't add to my career so I made a massive massive life change in January Chase Ely who will probably come up in this conversation a little bit more she's a a US shopper she's also a world silver medalist she's now my new training partner me and Chase have been friends for a little while now we met at the world championships a few years ago and really hit it off and ever since then, we've been, been really close friends and people didn't necessarily understand our relationship because we compete against each other, but we're real tight friends like outside of that. Now, in January, she had a couple of things going on. She lost her, her agent, unfortunately passed away and it made it difficult for her to get into competitions. So I said, hey, Chase, you know, you want to come over and do a training camp with me for three weeks in, in Loughborough? I'll come up. We'll get an Airbnb. It'll be cool, you know, and then we'll finish it with some competitions. And then you can go back home and carry on as usual. She said, yeah, sounds great. So she came over to the UK. On New Year's Day, two days in, Chase said, hey, I think I'm going to make this my European base for the summer. And I said, yeah, great. Like, this is great for me. Bearing in mind, Chase's PB at at that time was a metre further than mine. So for me, great motivation, you know, great to be able to see someone who can throw that much further than me. About fifth day in, she said, I think I'm just going to move to the UK. From that moment on, uh, Chase has been a massive support in my career. This change in my career and surrounding myself with this tight-knit circle and bringing myself to Loughborough, where there's an elite performance centre, has completely changed my outlet on my... uh, at my outlook on my athletics career is surrounded me with elite athletes all day every day chase is a world silver medalist so she has changed my idea of what is possible you know because in britain you're you can be a very big fish in a very small pond whereas in the u.s 
that doesn't happen. And, and she's been able to change my mindset and made me more determined and made me see what is physically possible. Going back to talking about your circle, I think it's super important to to pick the right people around you. And and like I say, I've only probably realised that over the last couple of years, how important that, that tight-knit circle is. I often refer to it as like a ladder of success. So some ladders, you know, you might be at the same point, but that ladder stretches further. So for me, I've always made sure I'm on the ladder that reaches the furthest. And I think what you're saying is, is a very similar thing. So how do you recognize which ladder to go for and where to step next? Because obviously this sounds like a great thing, but how did you determine that this relationship, these steps into new training camps, new partners would lead to a better point? What was the mindset behind that? Very quickly, you can work out people who are good for you and, and good good to be around and you know naturally you click with some people and you don't click with others and I think Chase is probably my best example because she we're very similar as people but also we have the same goals ultimately so to be around that people who are motivated by the same things as you I think is is massively important and I think that helped me decide that actually this this is a a great idea and you talk about sideways steps and I'm in the middle of a sideways step at the moment which is pretty interesting so for those who don't know about shot putting there's two different techniques you can use as a glide or the rotation and in times gone by the glide was more preferred by by female uh, athletes because it's easier to master and and you could get pretty strong and obviously there's been issues in athletics with with other substances in the past which you know the glide kind of played into that a little bit because you could be really powerful but not necessarily that technically efficient the the rotation is now making a a big leap forward in in women's shot putting so i was a glider um and the last couple of months i've decided that i'm going to make the transition to rotation which is a a really big step because it throws all your timing out and you know i've gone from throwing nearly 19 meters to to sort of 17 and a half 18 so I'm having to take that sideways step, but the, the sideways step is in view to by the time Paris comes around in 2024, that's where the upward step comes, you know, the, the distance comes then. So, you know, I'm not alone when I'm making these big decisions, but ultimately because I do an individual sport, the final decision always comes down to me. You know, you can have mentors and, and guides and, and suggestions, but the final decision is is always mine when it, you know, when it comes down to it. So would you say you're good at surrounding yourself with people with a better insight or better academic knowledge than you? And then you kind of pick and choose what suits you or do you just go with your gut? I think for me personally, as I've got older, I've got better at, at, at judging um, people. So my my job, if you like, my day job, I worked as a, a custody officer um, for the police and you have to be a pretty good reader of people in that environment and that situation so I think doing that job kind of subconsciously allows you to learn how to read people whether you know you're learning it or not you're you're learning it obviously because of the environment you're in part of that plays into my hands in terms of my career you know I'm quite good at getting a, a feeling about whether people are good or bad or or they're going to be um, helpful to my career or detrimental so I think some of it is what you'd call gut instinct because it's kind of inbuilt already yeah. And part of it is is talking to people and understanding, you know, the value of what they can bring you bring bring to your career and and the value of their knowledge, you know, because lots of coaches have lots of knowledge, but they don't necessarily know how to either hand it over to you in a in a formatted way, or they've got lots of knowledge that they can't string together if that if that makes sense. So you've got to be able to take them 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 bits of knowledge, them nuggets of knowledge and use them to to create your your full picture. 
do you know, again, we're getting an insight into what the Olympic mindset he, is here. And the reason why this podcast exists really is taking ideas from sports and business and other inspirational individuals and relating it to day-to-day people like myself. So obviously my day job is in education, as you know. And what you've alluded to there is a phrase that we sometimes use in education called the silver bullet. So you quite often find people looking for the silver bullet. So the most common is the children in my class aren't behaving. What can I do? That there's no one thing that will achieve good behavior. You know, it really doesn't. So it's really interesting to hear you say that you take those nuggets of information from 10, 12, 15 different sources, put them all together into like a jigsaw. And that's your kind of roadmap. Would you say goals? So the goals that you set for yourself are determined by your approach to acquiring information or do you already know where you want to be and then you set up looking for information to plan ahead see that's a really good question so i think there's an element of both okay um i think obviously as an athlete you want to achieve and be the best because that's the whole like that's why i'm an athlete i've got that built-in drive of being competitive and wanting to be the best so my of course my long-term goal and aspiration would be olympic champion also part of it comes from talking to people and working out whether them goals are realistic and whether you need to, you know, assess your goals or make short term goals. So I think it comes from both things because I can, I can build my picture around people's advice, but ultimately I'm always going to have my goal. My goal in my head is, is what I want to go for, you know? Even so if your it, family and friends are telling you to take a step back, it's too ambitious. You still go for it. Yeah. I think, a lot of people who aren't necessarily in my life now have said to me in the past, ah, you know, you'll never make the Olympics or you won't, you know, get a proper job or, or things like people have said that to me in the past, you know, when maybe I wasn't thrown as far as, as I, well, not am now before I started rotating, <laughs> was yeah. thrown as, you know, but I made the Olympics. I, I, I always said I wanted to be an Olympian. I am now an Olympian. And people said to me, well, you can't do that. It's not possible. You're a girl from, from Great Yarmouth. Like, come on, get a job, be, be, you know, go to work. And, and all my family had to make massive sacrifices to be able, when I was younger, particularly to be able to afford to, you know, cart me around the country and stuff. And people sort of thought, "Mm, you're you're stretching this a bit. You can't listen to those people. You've got to have that desire and that drive inside to know what you are capable of. And to, to be to be totally honest with you, since having Chase around as a training partner, my aspirations, my own personal aspirations for my career have gone through the roof. Previously in, in Britain, again, this big fish, small pond scenario, I think um, for me, people in, in positions of power would think, oh, get to the final, great. Get to the final, that's great. You know, you've, you've made it, you've got to the final, fantastic. But no one ever says, or no one had ever said, Sophie, you can win a medal. No one had ever said that. They'd said, make the final, that'll be great. Good, good, you know, good, good kudos for the team. Make the final. You can be an Olympic finalist or world finalist or whatever. Um, but no one said to me, you can, you can win a medal. Chase came along in January and went, you're capable of winning a medal. She said, you're as athletic as I am. You're as capable. You work as hard as I am. Why can't you win a medal? And it changed my, my thinking process and my mindset of actually, yeah, if you can do it, why can't I? I love that. I really love that approach. You know, if you can do it, why can't I? I think a lot of people sometimes get overwhelmed and they'll look at something and and look at the statistics and think, oh, there's no way I'm going to achieve it. So, you know, if you're the type of person that obviously is optimistic, would you say? You know, like you said about statistics and stuff there. I mean, a great analogy from my granddad, a footballing one is, yeah, football's played on grass, not paper, because everyone says, oh, you should beat them on paper or you should lose on paper. Hey, what does it matter? You know, you've got to have that belief and that desire and 
that optimism to be able to, uh, you know, push through and believe. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done what I've done in this sport and gone through what I've gone through in terms of all of the the not so great stuff that athletes have to go through to get to this point. Um, and I'm not about to, to to give it up now. So you have to be really optimistic, definitely. So you've sacrificed an awful lot, and we know that you've become one of the was it three thousand British athletes that ever represent Britain at an Olympics. Is that right? Yeah, I think I can't remember the number exactly, um, but it was between two thousand five hundred and three thousand people um, have. That's the you know nobody more than that has ever represented Great Britain at the modern Olympics. So yeah, there's not been a lot of us when you think how long the modern Olympics has been running for, and it's kind of mind blowing, really. <laughs> So you've obviously reached, you know, a level that most of us would kind of struggle to ever comprehend. So, you know, first of all, congratulations to you. And second of all, massive bravery. And I think that's a really interesting thing to hear you talk so confidently about those big decisions you've made to change a technique. Have you ever heard the expression of need to achieve and need to avoid failure? The two different personality types. Well, which one would you say you are? Again, I think it's changed as I've got older and learned more about myself, I think when I was younger, it was need to avoid failure. You know, as you, as you grow up, you, you change as a person and learn about yourself as a person anyway. But I think when I was younger, I was so scared of, of not winning or like if I didn't win, people would laugh at me. All those typical things that when you would talk about that personality type, that was me. You know, I was so determined to win because I didn't want to fail. It wasn't I wanted to win to win. It was because I didn't want to lose. And I think that was a younger me. And probably a more competitively immature me. You know, I didn't necessarily understand how to compete as a high level athlete. I didn't understand necessarily how to harness my mind to use in a competition. I kind of just went all guns blazing and hoped for the best. That's kind of what I did when I was younger. And then I think for me, competition, maturity and the need to achieve came in probably in 2018. I learned about a lot about myself that year. That was the year I kind of started off my winter training in in September 2017. I said to myself, right, next year is going to be the the year you're going to you're going to push on and you're going to just win everything this is it like you're going to go in and you're going to attempt to win everything and have that personality of I'm going to achieve I'm not going to lose and I think that was a big turning point for me and I'd grown up and I'd kind of recognized my flaws before and I'd, I'd sort of almost really buckled down and decided that that's what I was you know that's what I was going to do so I've kind of been both in my career which for some people is probably strange because your personality is your personality but I think a lot of it is about learning and developing and learning to understand yourself especially in pressure environments definitely and uh, for anyone listening at home there's a really interesting test if you want to know if you or your partner or anyone is a uh, need to achieve or need to avoid failure you might know this Sophie with a background in sport you put a bin in the corner of a room and you give them a tennis ball and you say you've got five attempts to get the ball in the bin. However many points you get, that's the winner. And the need to avoid failure, people will step really close and just drop it in. The need to achieve will be trying to bounce it off the wall, you know, go a little bit further away. So that was a really interesting person, you know, very, very obviously rudimental uh, personality test that probably wouldn't stand up to too much scrutiny, but really interesting. Also, another thing that you reminded me of is something called existentialism. Have you ever heard of it? So- no, I haven't existentialism this is this was introduced to me by uh, a, a support member of staff uh, he was a trained counsellor quite often we say you know we learn from leaders we learn from the people above us well I was his boss and I learned so much from this guy and he was talking to me about existentialism because it's the concept that none of us really matter when he first said that to me I felt really depressed and thought oh thanks Tom that hasn't cheered me up at all but the point he was trying to make was if we fail in what we're trying to do no one will really remember it doesn't matter as you move through life if you're constantly scared of failing you'll never be remembered anyway if you do win 
there's a chance you might be remembered. So actually, the glory goes to the brave, doesn't it? So if you are afraid of failure, remember existentialism. Nobody remembers well, it anyway. This tattoo here is actually says fortune favours the brave on my wrist. So um, it's really important to me, that kind of thing. Yeah, I obviously have it there right when I throw. So it's, yeah, it's on my wrist. That's great to hear. Obviously, you know, we've I've been talking to you for a little while now. I get the, the, the sense that you are a really, you know, warm, lovely person. But you have to be selfish to be an athlete at your level. And you have to really... Yeah. So how did you transition from solely focusing on your own performance to dragging the team with you and thinking of the bigger picture? Or is that still a journey that you're on? Yeah. So I think for me, I like when I'm not competing, I can use that as a to be a leader. You know, I, I am a real people person. I love people. I've got really good relationships within the team anyway. Um, and I try and always chat to everyone and 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 be friendly and all of that stuff. And I think I use that to be able to, to draw people together in, in, in that sense as, as, you know, the captain at that championships. It was, um, it was strange actually, because there were, were people in that room who had won international medals and, and, you know, sporting achievements outweighed mine, but it's having that ability to get everybody on side. And I think that's what Christian, the performance director kind of saw in me a little bit that I could, I could sort of rally the troops and, and, and draw everybody together. And like you said, in, in an individual sport, that isn't, necessarily easy because everybody does have their own agenda and we only come together very seldom as a team so I think he he definitely saw in me that ability to to draw people in um make them feel like something make them feel part of a you know part of a team and and part of a unit you know and and that's why I I did my team speech and stuff and and Christian said you know wow I I didn't expect that because I think people see me as a bit of a class clown normally okay Um, (laughs) draw people together and draw people in we were talking the other day at training and there was a few of us there and chase just said you're just the life and soul of the party she said you're everyone they're like bees to a honeypot like it's you you just bring people together and i said yeah like i've kind of always been good at that as a as a person i think and that's the reason they chose me as the leader because i can bring people together regardless of whether i'm worried about my own performance or not i can kind of take myself away from that when i need to so i know christian malcolm obviously he was bbc sports coach of the year he yeah. was the head of Australian athletics. He took over in an incredibly tough time, I think, just before. It was during COVID, just before the Olympics? Yeah, during COVID, just before the Olympics, yeah. So the whole cycle was put out. You know, obviously, this is a silly question, of course, but how did that that change in uncertainty, how did it affect you personally with your performance? Did you manage to ride across that change or was it something that when you look back, you probably could have managed better? See, I, I feel myself very lucky because I was able to train all the way through the pandemic um and that gave me the ability to still have that routine and stability which my sport brings me day on a day-to-day my sport became my routine and my safe place and almost my sanity to be able to get me through every day because it, i was still training and going on as as normal so um, did you make a little training center for yourself at home or how did you manage that yeah it was at home in the garden i've got a, a an indoor shot circle which you can just pick up and move um so i used that and i brought a, a bench and and a rack from argos before they all got sold out <laughs> yeah. and, uh, that was it that was me i had sort of 200 kilo of weight and, and my circle and my shot and off i went um so i was i was really really lucky in that sense well there's no luck involved you made the most of a really difficult situation a lot of people would have said there's no way i can do this i need x i need y i need z and sometimes we forget with the access to all the technology we have and all the resource that we do. Ultimately, we can get it done if we need to. Yeah, I feel really privileged now training Loughborough because obviously I have everything at my fingertips up here. 
but when I trained in Norfolk, that we have no indoor throwing facilities. So I had to throw come wind, snow, hail, you name it. I was out in it no matter what the temperature. I, I trained on the track. I trained in the ring no matter what. So now I've gone from the most basic training setup to the probably the best in the country so i feel real privileged and lucky to be able to you know train here every single day and have have these facilities literally at my fingertips and i think um you know that's only going to aid me in in my performance and my mindset like i said having elite being around elite athletes all day every day is just you know something that can't be taken for granted and talking about your mindset again i read something about uh it was an interview you conducted where you said that now that enough time has passed you feel comfortable to talk about tokyo and what happened and how you maybe didn't reach the level of performance you'd hoped for what's happened why suddenly the change where you feel comfortable to talk about it you know what's changed in you i think um for me again it was that big monu- monumental shift in january in my mindset and and having that that change of people around me um kind of made me realize that I went to the Olympics, I achieved my dream. Um, and unfortunately, because of COVID, I, I was very unlucky that I was in isolation for 14 days and I couldn't train as I wanted to or, or, or at the times I needed to and, and get the sessions in and stuff. So my performance, of course, would have been affected. And I think reflecting on that, I should have probably been able to, to deal with that mentally in a different way. And all of it, regardless of whether uh, you know hopefully a pandemic will never happen such as covid again but um you have to learn from that and you have to be more adaptable and i think you know i took a lot of lessons from tokyo um regardless of whether they were in my control or out of my control um but i i learned a lot about myself as a as an athlete and an individual and i think now the time has passed and my mindset changed in january for me it's okay great tokyo was there um but now we've got you know championships coming up and I need to move on and to be a fantastic athlete you've got to be like a goldfish you've got to have a short memory for the bad things and a real short memory for the good things because there's always something else ahead of you I became a member of NHT when I became a deputy head teacher it's been there throughout my leadership career from deputy headship into my head teaching roles. I've used it when I needed advice. I've used it when I needed training and I've used it when I've needed support. NAHT has been there throughout my career. If you're interested in becoming a member, come to our website, www.naht.org.uk. So you've spoken a little bit about um, your learnings when you were in Tokyo and what you've learned about yourself. What would you say the three things that you learned, you know, since January that really have changed your mindset? Because you seem like you've grown a lot. Obviously, we've said about Chase and you've widened your circle and you've surrounded yourself with higher performing people, positive people, people that are ambitious and expect you to achieve more. But what has changed in you? What are the lessons that you've taken away from that period? I think for me personally, I've learned to be a bit more uh, resilient in terms of like, uh, have to be a bit more like water off a duck's back kind of thing. I think uh, in sport, obviously, naturally, you face a lot of criticism. I think everybody, you know, if you make a mistake at work, it's normally you're in that small circle. People may hear about your mistake. If I make a mistake at work, it's on TV. Lots of people know about it. <laughs> like. If I have a bad day, my bad day is out there for everyone to see. But I've kind of learned to be more more resilient and a little bit tougher and not take things to heart so much because I am, by nature, a real big softie. So um, 
I used to take a lot of criticism to heart and didn't deal with it that well. Whereas now I've kind of thought, right, I know what I'm doing. I can take criticism, suck it up, move on and, and forget about it. Um, and that's that's the one big thing I've, I've really learned since since January. And also trusting myself. I think in the past I doubted my, not necessarily my ability, but my knowledge. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd almost seek reassurance, whereas I knew I knew the answer, but I'd still seek that re- reassurance almost, you know, I'd say mm, that for, you know, watching someone's throw, for example, I'd say, oh, their feet look a little close together. What do you think? I know their feet are too close together. Why am I, why am I asking somebody else? You know, I, I know my sport. I've done it for a very long time. I've, I'm one of the longest serving people on the team at the moment, you know, in, in current times. So I think it's having that, that um, self-assurance almost. Uh, to be able to push forward I think that's one of the other things I learned the the third thing for me was I overtrained a lot in the past because I thought more is more whereas actually sometimes I've learned that now less can be more and and I've learned that about myself and I've learned I've almost got to the stage where I've got that athletic maturity now where I can go "Mm, I'm done like my body's sore or I'm I'm too tired I'm too fatigued and I, I didn't have that in the past I had that I'm just going to plow on through and, and, and get on with it. So I think they're the three things I've really learned about myself is, is the, you know, the self-assurance and the, and the belief in myself, the, the understand I, I've learned to understand myself a bit more. And I think all of them three things kind of come from, from that. It seems like you're really open to learning, trying new things. You've obviously demonstrated quite a few times throughout this interview that you're, you know, you're brave and you're explorative. So the thing I'm really interested in is something you've alluded to there. You're the longest serving shot putter on the, certainly in the mm-hmm. British team. I've represented GB at senior level since I was 17. So I've been on the team for 10 years now. Yeah. So I think I'm one of the, the old, I'm certainly one of the old guards on, on the team now. Yeah. And I'm still, I saw I'm still... you, you were born. You made me feel really old, Sophie. Uh, I've got, st- I've got a sticker book of my mum's your age. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm interested because you started out life as a sprinter. I did. So yes. How did you discover your talent? That's, that's quite a long way. Shot putting from sprinting is, is quite a distance. So it isn't, it isn't, you know, there's okay. lots of similarities like the explosiveness and, and all of that stuff is, it's a real good crossover actually. Like, and a lot of shot putters will have been sprinters previously. Um, but really long story short uh, I used to play girls football when I was younger obviously because I wanted to be like my granddad being my sporting hero Um, but then I realised that I'm not great in teams I get too frustrated with when people aren't trying or I deem that they're not trying hard enough (laughs) Um, so I I begged my mum to take me to the athletics club the local athletics club which she she did um, and as a child, everyone wants to be the fastest. You know, you want to win sports day. You want to win the races. It's just what you want to do. You want to be the quickest. And I was pretty quick, but, and I'd won county sprint medals, but I was never going to be like Olympics, Team GB, that kind of thing. Like I was okay, but I was never going to be the next Usain Bolt, you know, which just wasn't going to happen. Um, And I was 13. So a typical grumpy teenager. And my mum said to me, Give the shot put a go. And I said, mum, that is not cool. I'm not doing that. I'm not interested in what you got to say. No, I'm 13. I know everything about the world. No way. Um, and she went, well, I've paid for it now, so you've got to do it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh fine, I'll do it. So I went and did this competition. It was the count- indoor county championships. And I threw seven metres, 76, and I came second. And I'd never picked up a shot put in my life. And people said, 
hey, you've you've kind of got a feel for that. You should maybe get some coaching and see where it goes. Um, and I don't know if you heard of it, but English schools, the, the athletics competition, um, it's like the big national schools competition for, for athletics. And it's like at that age, it's like the, the biggest like thing that you can go to. And the standard at the time was 10 metres. I had to throw 10 metres to go. So I was like, right, I know what I've got to do. I've got my eyes set on it. I'm doing it. I'm throwing this 10 metres. So within a few months, I'd thrown 10 metres and then I went to the English schools and came second. So it's a national competition. I came second in the UK. So I went from second in the county to second in the UK within six months, if. Um, and then people were like, OK, like this is kind of your thing. And then within two years, I'd then represented Great Britain for the first time. So Shopper kind of picked me. I didn't really pick it. And then once I got the bug, then the rest is history. So there's a lot of work out there at the moment around talent takes practice. And yeah. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell came out with the 10,000 hour rule, which basically supports the theory that practice makes perfect. The reason I find that story interesting is because you've literally gone from zero to second in Great Britain. What's your kind of thoughts behind the 10,000 hour rule and finding a talent, finding a purpose? I think for me, there's an element of truth to it, whether it's 10,000 hours or not, there's an element of truth to it. You know, one of the greatest sayings is the harder I practice, the luckier I get. And it's, it's true to a level. When I was young and my, my rise was that quick, it was because I was probably bigger and stronger in reality than everybody else. I didn't have a good technical knowledge or anything like that. Um, and that's how it started. And then the higher up you get, the harder the steps become. So we were we were, me and Chase were actually having this conversation to bring her up again. Short, you'll be sick of hearing her name. You know, I've we're going to have to get her on the podcast now after you've spoken about it so much. Absolutely, she, and then she probably won't mention me at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so she, we we had we had a conversation, and she said, you know, you get to sixteen meters and the steps like this big, and there's you know 10,000 10, people looking for a sixteen meters. Then you get to seventeen meters and the step becomes this big, and there's like. 5,000 people and then you get to 18 then it's you know the steps that big but there's less people and then so on and so forth up the distances so I think the element of the, the practice part of it is true because as you get higher up the 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 scale the harder and more advanced the practicing has to become but when you're when when the distances are small you know talking about shopping it's very much easier to, to make those jumps and with not as much practice but at the level i'm now at the the increments of improvement are <clears throat> centimeters you're talking about marginal gains theory now which is Dave yeah. so yeah i assume you're trying to tweak by the sounds of it you know you rest by three percent your recovery by five percent your obviously your technique by whatever percent so if you had to look across your performance at the moment what's your approach towards those you know the minutiae of the detail how do you go about determining what you need to focus on to get to where you need to be Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they had to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report 
And you can join the conversation on social media too with the hashtag Pearson School Report. So it's actually really hard for me to speak on that at the moment because I am going through this technical change. But if I take it back a few months when I was still gliding, it's probably easier for me to to sort of reflect on that because at the moment I'm having to throw, 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 throw and not worry so much about the recovery because I've got to catch up them 10,000 hours of and, and rep, reps. Whereas when I was, for example, leading into the world championships or the Olympics, you know, it's how many hours of sleep am I getting? Am I, am I eating right to recover properly? What's my body weight like? Is it fluctuating too much? Um, all of those little percentages and little things to make a huge difference in your overall performance. And if you can get a handle on them, that's when you can become the most successful. You know, some of the most successful athletes in the world with the greatest respect to them all are the most boring because their, their lives are so very, very regimented and, and, and controlled and, and everything else. And of course, like we all like to go out and have fun. Like, you know, I'd, I'd be a liar if I sat and said, Oh, I, I live this life of, you know, broccoli and, and, and five mile runs every morning, which isn't the truth. Once you can get them percentages down and those, those little things better, that's where the performances come from. Like my recovery is awful. And I know I have to improve on that. My, my flexibility is bad. I know I have to improve on that. And if I can bring those up, as you say, by 2%, 3%, 4%, then that gain translates into the circle. And that's where the distance comes. Managing it is really difficult as an athlete because you've got so many plates to spin at the same time. Yeah. But again, comes with experience. As I've got older, I've got way better at, at learning what I can maybe drop off a little bit and what I need to add. Learn about those changes that, that you need to make and, and become more aware of. A really nice step now would be for you to help me translate some of what you just said to some of our listeners because you know you've said that as you've become more experienced you've become better at managing and spinning all of those plates that's a really interesting analogy for me because working in education you speak to many leaders head teachers teachers it's not till they've had you know years in service or time in service that they learn the things that need to be done and the things that don't and the analogy I always give to some of my team when they're feeling overwhelmed or worried is that I think I've still got a to-do list from my first year as a teacher that has got things I never completed so Clearly, there are things that aren't important and don't need to be done. Talking of the Olympic mindset now, what are the three things that you would take from sport to your personal life and to your profession when you're, you're finished in athletics? I th- That's really hard because there's so much that I would take from sport into life. Um, I think for me, the well, three... I won't limit you. Sophie, I won't limit you as many <laughs> as you like. <laughs> I, I could go, we could be here all day. Um, for me, I think work ethic is massive for me. Work ethic is obviously, a, you know, it's a, it's a rate of production, if you like, not necessarily a mindset, but you have to have the right mindset to achieve that work ethic, if that makes sense. That's my number one, top one, because if I didn't have that determination and that, that work ethic, I would have never achieved what I've achieved in my career. The second one, believe it or not, is real basic time management even though it sounds like a process is kind of also a mindset because you have to have, like I was just saying that, that time management mindset to drop out what's important and what's not and make decisions. It's like a, the mindset is almost a decision-making process, you know? So you have to have that, that ability to prioritize. That's essentially what it is, but I'd bring, I'd call it time management in, not in necessarily a sporting sense, but in a life sense. And I think my third one and probably most importantly is, 
be coachable, be open-minded, listen, absorb, take things on, get rid of the things you don't need, take the things you do need and, and build that puzzle like we said earlier. Being coachable is the key to success in, in my opinion. I think that that's a really interesting thing. So when I worked in Wales, we were working, I was leading on the development of a new national curriculum alongside a, a small team of people. And we oversaw, you know, six groups in our region. So there's 500 schools represented by 60 people in, in my region. And I had to oversee them. And one of the main concepts of this curriculum is to create lifelong learners. And I, I always found that so powerful that you know, not just for children, we should all be lifelong learners, whatever we put our mind to, whatever, whatever field of work we're in, even as a father, as a husband, you, you know, you're always learning and reflecting and trying to be, well, I'm trying to be better every day. Again, maybe it comes from sports and being a naturally competitive person, but I feel like what you've touched on there is something that all of us could take away, which is just try to be a little better than we were yesterday. And, and don't sweat it too hard if we're not, because that comes back to existentialism. Nobody's going to remember if we fail today, but people might remember if we succeed tomorrow. Before we move forward again, you touched earlier on dealing with criticism and dealing with anxiety and those types of things. Have you ever worked with a sports psychologist? Yeah, I did for a, a small period of time, actually. Yeah, I worked with a sports psychologist. Um, I, by the time you get to a championship, for example, everybody, all the girls have done the same physical work. You're physically pretty much equal other than your physical attributes, obviously, that you can't change. But physicality-wise, you're, you're, you know, you're trained in the same. Your mind is like... 90% of it by the time you get to a championship. So for me, a sports psychologist is super important because we worry about all this time about training our bodies. But if we don't train our minds, then when we need it, it doesn't work for us. Athletes often think you need a psychologist when things aren't going your way. But actually the best time to access it is when it's going well, because then you've got them processes in place for when it's not going so well. I did and should again, if that's a lesson to myself. <laughs> Sophie, really interesting point. So my day job, I'm director of education. So I line manage head teachers and I've been working with head teachers outside of, of my group of schools and across the country for a little while. And, and while I was with them, that was a really major, you know, coaching point that we talked about reflecting on the things that are going well, because this person has found themselves in a bit of a rut, things aren't working well. And all of a sudden they're reflecting on everything they do. They're analyzing performance. They're going back through notes this is not the time to reflect. You're reflecting on bad performance. You want to look at the times you were successful. What did you do then? How did it look? How did it feel? And how do we get back to that point? So again, taking from sport is so, and even when I played and managed a football team, you look at the, the mistakes, you would go back and you'd look, oh, how did we concede that goal? Whose mistake was that? Who wasn't marking their man? But you're absolutely spot on. It's better off time being spent looking at the positives and working on those patterns and trying to replicate them again and again. And, and then you can get to the area of marginal gains where we're tweaking the 2% and the 3%. Yeah, I think, as you say, it's, it's, you're better to, to almost ingrain those good and positive patterns than the negative ones. And I think, you know, as, as athletes, I think we'd probably, if you, you know, other athletes would say, I think we're probably all guilty of running to a sports psychologist when it's not going right because you feel like your mind's letting you down. You've done all this training. Why is it not happening in competition or whatever? But, you know, stressing that point of actually training the positive is and reflecting on the positive is is way more important. And especially in a sporting sense, like ultimately we get very little moments of like, oh, like it doesn't happen very often. Like you get them one or two moments in your career where you think, yeah, I nailed that. The only way you can harness that and, and 
use it to, to and try and make it happen more often is, is learn, as you said, those processes that made it happen. Um, and sometimes it's just that all the stars align on the day and everything's right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great when it happens, but it's, it's rare and sport it is very rare. Really interesting. You've touched on that point there because most of the people I've spoken to in the making of this podcast are retired athletes. And the one regret or the one thing they say they would say to their younger selves is to be in the moment more and enjoy it. And it sounds like that's something you're really working on and trying to achieve. Yeah, I think for me, that's super important. And again, something I've really learned since since January is you we get this career once and it is a in the grand scheme of life a very short periods of our lives like I'm going to get older and there'll be a point where my body says now nah, I'm done with you putting 200 kilos on your back now thank you very much and so I'm trying to be really conscious of of enjoying every day no matter how awful training is and how, no matter how awful it makes my body feel I've decided that I'm on this crazy roller coaster, so I might as well enjoy it while I'm on it, you know? Amazing. Do you feel happier since you made that decision just to embrace the chaos and, and the pain and the hurt and, and the difficulty? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's made me almost lighter. Before I was so stressed about performing and, and oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that to be the best. And 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 I almost, you know, there is a, there is a point where you have to sweat the small stuff, don't get me wrong. But I almost forgot to take things in you know I went to Tokyo and okay wasn't my best experience because of the isolation stuff but you forget like I've dreamt of going to the Olympics since I was six years old I sat on my mum's lap at six and I was watching I think it was Sydney if I remember right and I turned to her and said mum I want to be an Olympican that's what I called her back then at six years old (laughs) and I dreamt of that moment of getting to Tokyo since I was six years old and then when I got there it was like okay it's just my job like I'm here and you forget to absorb that and take that in and be like, oh, okay, I'm in the Olympic Village. I'm surrounded by like, oh, look, there's Tom Daly walking past. Do you know what I mean? You forget to take in all of those amazing things that are happening around you because you're so focused on your performance, which, of course, you should be. But also you need to live in the moment and be excited for, for what is happening to you. Had the Olympics happened this year, after I kind of had that awakening, if you like, in January, I think I would have approached it very, very differently this time around. So, Sophie, if you could go back and speak to six-year-old six Sophie sat in your mother's lap watching the Olympics at, at that age, what kind of lessons, what would you say to her about the journey ahead and what you've had to go through to get to where you are to become an Olympian? I'd, I'd probably say, you know what, it's been pretty awful. There's been hurt and tears and blood, blood sweat, and tears. The, the, like the definition of blood, sweat and tears. You've broken things. You've been down and out. It's been financially difficult. It's been difficult on all the people around you. Um, it's broken friendships, relationships and everything else on the way. But God, is it worth it? Because no other job in the world will give you the opportunities I have. And I, I feel real lucky. And that's what I'd say. So I'd say persevere. Go through the pain. Go through the hurt. Go through the broken bones because it's worth it. Sophie, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. No worries. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by the NAHT, the School Leaders Union. Don't forget to hang around and listen to our Charity of the Week. It's a short segment at the end of this podcast that explores amazing charities doing sensational work across our country and wider. Thank you for joining us today and see you next time.
Thanks for listening to the Olympic Mindset Podcast. As you know, at the end of every episode, we offer a platform to a charity doing amazing work. This week's charity is the Children's Society, and we're fortunate to be joined by the inspirational CEO, Mark Russell. Hi, Mark. Hi, Dominic. Thanks for having me. No problem. First of all, Mark, you know, why why come join us on the Olympic Mindset Podcast and have you heard it? Yes, I have. I've been listening to your podcast. It's fantastic. And you're a brilliant host. So I'm really delighted to be here and to say something about the work that I do. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. I owe you £5 for that one. Um, I'll do. <laughs> and, and again, thanks for joining us. You know, I truly believe the work that you are doing is inspirational as an educator, as a person that came from uh, a working class background and is now working in executive leadership. I've kind of worked across the whole spectrum and I've seen some good, some bad. And when I see somebody like yourself talking about the things that you do with such passion and such conviction, it really is amazing for me. So, Mark, if you don't mind, I've, I've built you up a lot there now, no pressure. Um, would you mind just sharing very briefly the kind of work you've been doing and since you've joined the Children's Society, the difference that you have made? Well, thank you, Dominic. That's really, really kind. Uh, the Children's Society is one of Britain's uh, largest children's charities, and we work with some of the most disadvantaged young people across the country. We know that life has just got too hard for too many young people. Too many young people are living in poverty. Too many young people are battling with mental health issues. Too many young people are being groomed, exploited, neglected. And we're trying our best to disrupt all of that and to change the futures and the outcomes for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of children and young people. So right across the country, my teams are working with uh, young people in really tough situations. We're working directly with around 55,000 young people every year. And then what we're trying to do is we're trying to take the learning from all of that work to go further upstream to stop other young people falling into the same issues that my team deal with every day. And last year, our our work, our prevention work has reached just shy of three quarters of a million young people. So we're respected by the police, by local authorities, by schools education. But big picture for us is we're trying to build a society that works for every child. Every child gets the best start in life. This will depend on their postcode or their parents' job. That every child deserves the best future and can walk tall and, and thrive, not just survive. And that's our ambition. And obviously, as CEO, you, you do have the ability to, to make real change. Um, I, I know you've been working quite closely with different people in Westminster. Um, would you mind talking to us a little about the work you've done there and what maybe we can see happening? Yeah, sure. So what we try to do then is we try and work out what are the big changes that have got a shift uh, in, in the public square for children and young people. So in the course of the last year, our team have... Um, changed the law on school uniform. So school uniform will be cheaper for every child in England Wales from the, from September this year. We've worked to ensure that we've extended uh, free school meals to more and more young people who need them, who are in difficulty. We've secured uh, hundreds of millions of pounds through our campaigning for local authorities to support families in destitution. And now what we're trying to do is we're trying to persuade the government to invest more in early help for young people with mental health issues. So we. Our campaigning work has reached about 9 million children in the last year. And obviously you've got lots of shops and stores around the country too. How's that going since since COVID, since returning from the pandemic? Well, I'm really glad our shops are open again because our retail arm, who are absolutely amazing, provide about a third of our income. So we've got about 106 shops around the country. So we do check us out if there's one near you and support that. Uh, so it's really good. And we, we're very fortunate. We've got um, about 10,000 volunteers who work for us around the country. Uh, supporting young people uh, directly or working in our shops or helping to fundraise and so anyone who's listening who wants to join our movement who wants to be part of our team who wants to help us change the world for children go to our website childrensociety.org.uk there's a big yellow box at the bottom stick your email address in there and we'll be able to update you on our campaigns our work and and find out how you can be involved in in helping us um, build a society that works for every child 
Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Really lovely to talk to you. I know you're not an Olympian, but I would love to get you on at some point as a guest because your life story is incredible. I know we've shared it very briefly. Um, and at the very least, you could share some exciting West Wing quotes with our listeners. <laughs> Thanks, Dominic. I'd love to. All right. Have a good day. Thanks, Mark.